Hi, everybody. Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, I welcome your questions, your comments, and suggestions at carlareadstheclassics at gmail.com. I also invite you to please respond to the Q&A at the episode descriptions. And also, if you're so inclined, please throw something in the old tip cup. And now, without further delay, I give you Daniel Key's Flowers for Algernon, Progress Report 12. June 5. Nehmer is upset because I haven't turned in any progress reports in almost two weeks. And he's justified because the Welberg Foundation has begun paying me a salary out of the grant so that I won't have to look for a job. The International Psychological Convention at Chicago is only a week away. He wants his preliminary report to be as full as possible since Algernon and I are the prime exhibits for his presentation. Our relationship is becoming increasingly strained. I resent Nemer's constant references to me as a laboratory specimen. He makes me feel that before the experiment, I was not really a human being. I told Strauss that I was too involved in thinking, reading, and digging into myself, trying to understand who and what I am, and that writing was such a slow process, it made me impatient to get my ideas down. I followed his suggestion that I learned to type, and now I can type nearly 75 words a minute. It's easier to get it all down on paper. Strauss again brought up my need to speak and write simply and directly so that people will understand me. He reminds me that language is sometimes a barrier instead of a pathway. Ironic to find myself on the other side of the intellectual fence. I see Alice occasionally, but we don't discuss what happened. Our relationship remains platonic, but for three nights after I left the bakery, there were nightmares. Hard to believe it was two weeks ago. I am pursued down the empty streets at night by ghostly figures. Though I always run to the bakery, the door is locked, and the people inside never turn to look at me. Through the window, the bride and groom on the wedding cake point at me and laugh. The air becomes charged with laughter until I can't stand it, and the two cupids wave their flaming arrows. I scream, I pound on the door, but there is no sound. I see Charlie staring back at me from inside. Is it only a reflection? Things clutch at my legs and drag me away from the bakery down into the shadows of the alleyway, and just as they begin to ooze all over me, I wake up. Other times, the window of the bakery opens into the past, and looking through it, I see other things and other people. It's astonishing how my power of recall is developing. I cannot control it completely yet, but sometimes when I'm busy reading or working on a problem, I get a feeling of intense clarity. I know it's some kind of subconscious warning signal, and now instead of waiting for the memory to come to me, I close my eyes and reach out for it. Eventually, I'll be able to bring this recall completely under control to explore not only the sum of my past experiences, but also all of the untapped faculties of the mind. Even now, as I think about it, I feel the sharp stillness. I see the bakery window. Reach out and touch it, cold and vibrating, and then the glass becomes warm hotter, fingers burning. The window reflecting my image becomes bright, and as the glass turns into a mirror, I see little Charlie Gordon, 14 or 15, looking out at me through the window of his house, and it's doubly strange to realize how different he was. He has been waiting for his sister to come home from school, and when he sees her turn the corner onto Mark's street, 
He waves and calls her name and runs out onto the porch to meet her. Norma waves a paper. I got an A in my history test. I knew all the answers. Mrs. Babin said it was the best paper in the whole class. She is a pretty girl with light brown hair carefully braided and coiled about her head in a crown. And as she looks up at her big brother, the smile turns to a frown and she skips away, leaving him behind as she darts up the steps into the house. Smiling, he follows her. His mother and father are in the kitchen, and Charlie, bursting with excitement of Norma's good news, blurts it out before she has a chance. She got an A! She got an A! No! shrieks Norma. Not you! You don't tell! It's my mark, and I'm going to tell! Now wait a minute, young lady. Matt puts his newspaper down and addresses her sternly. That's no way to talk to your brother. He had no right to tell. Never mind. Matt glares at her over his warning finger. He meant no harm by it, and you mustn't shout at him that way. She turns to her mother for support. I got an A, the best mark in class. Now can I have a dog? You promised. You said if I got a good mark in my test, and I got an A, a brown dog with white spots. And I'm going to call him Napoleon because that was the question I answered best on the test. Napoleon lost the Battle of Waterloo. Rose nods. Go out on the porch and play with Charlie. He's been waiting over an hour for you to come home from school. I don't want to play with him. Go out on the porch, says Matt. Norma looks at her father and then at Charlie. I don't have to. Mother said I don't have to play with him if I don't want to. Now, young lady... Matt rises out of his chair and comes toward her. You just apologize to your brother. I don't have to. She screeches, rushing behind her mother's chair. He's like a baby. He can't play Monopoly or checkers or anything. He gets everything all mixed up. I won't play with him anymore. Then go to your room. Can I have a dog now, Mama? Matt hits the table with his fist. There'll be no dog in this house as long as you take this attitude, young lady. I promised her a dog if she did well in school. A brown one with white spots, adds Norma. Matt points to Charlie standing near the wall. Did you forget you told your son he couldn't have one because we didn't have the room and no one to take care of it? Remember when he asked for a dog? Are you going back on what you said to him? Because I can take care of my dog, insists Norma. I'll feed him and wash him and take him out. Charlie, who has been standing near the table, playing with his large red button at the end of a string, suddenly speaks out. I'll help her take care of the dog. I'll help her I'll help her feed it and, and brush it, and I, I won't let the other dogs bite it. But before either Matt or Rose can answer, Norma shrieks, No, it's going to be my dog, only my dog. Matt nods. You see? Rose sits beside her and strokes her braids to calm her. But we have to share things, dear. Charlie can help you take care of it. No, only mine. I'm the one who got the A in history, not him. He never gets good marks like me. Why should he help with the dog? And and then the dog will like him more than me, and it'll be his dog instead of mine. No, if I can't have it for myself, I don't want it. That settles it, says Matt, picking up his newspaper and settling down in his chair again no dog. Suddenly, Norma jumps off the couch and grabs the history test she had brought home so eagerly just a few minutes earlier. She tears it and throws the pieces into Charlie's startled face. I hate you! I hate you! Norma, stop that at once! 
Rose grabs her, but she twists away. And I hate school. I hate it. I'll stop studying and I'll be a dummy like him. I'll forget everything I learned and, and then I'll be just like him. She runs out of the room shrieking. It's happening to me already. I'm forgetting everything. I'm forgetting and I don't remember anything I learned anymore. Rose, terrified, runs after her. Matt sits there staring at the newspaper in his lap. Charlie, frightened by the hysteria and the screaming, shrinks into a chair, whimpering softly. What has he done wrong? And the feeling, and, and feeling the wetness in his trousers and the trickling down his legs, he sits there waiting for the slap he knows will come when his mother returns. The scene fades, but from that time, Norma spent all her free moments with her friends or playing alone in her room. She kept the door to her room closed and I was forbidden to enter without her permission. I recall one I recall once overhearing Norma and one of her girlfriends playing in her room and Norma shouting, he's not my real brother. He's just a boy we took in because we felt sorry for him. My mama told me and she said, I can tell everyone now that he's not really my brother at all. I wish this memory were a photograph so that I could tear it up and throw it back in her face. I want to call back. I want to call back across those years and tell her I never meant to stop her from getting a dog. She could have had it and she could have had it all to herself and I wouldn't have fed it or brushed it or played with it and I would never have made it like me more than it liked her. I only wanted her to play games with me the way we used to. I never meant to do anything that would hurt her at all. June 6th. My first real quarrel with Alice today, my fault, I wanted to see her. Often after a disturbing memory or dream, talking to her, just being with her, makes me feel better. But it was a mistake to go down to the center to pick her up. I had not been back to the center for retarded adults since the operation, and the thought of seeing the place was exciting. It's on 23rd Street, east of east of 5th Avenue, in an old schoolhouse that had been used by the Beekman University Clinic for the last five years as a center for experimental education, special classes for the handicapped. The sign outside of the doorway, framed by the old spike gateway, is just a gleaming brass plate that says C-R-A. Beekman extension. Her class ended at eight, but I wanted to see the room where, not so long ago, I had struggled over simple reading and writing and learned to count change for a dollar. I went inside, slipped up to the door, and keeping out of sight, I looked through the window. Alice was at her desk, and in a chair beside her was a thin-faced woman I didn't recognize. She was frowning that open frown of unconcealed puzzlement, and I wondered what Alice was trying to explain. Near the blackboard was Mike Dorney in his wheelchair, and there in his usual first row first seat was Lester Braun, who Alice said was the smartest in the group. Lester had learned easily what I had struggled over, but he came when he felt like it or he stayed away to earn money waxing floors. I guess if he had cared at all, if it had been important to him as it was to me, they would have used him for the experiment. There were new faces too, people I didn't know. Finally, I got I got up the nerve to go in. It's Charlie, said Mike, whirling his wheelchair around. I waved to him. Bernice, the pretty blonde with empty eyes, looked up and smiled dully. Where you been, Charlie? That's a nice suit. The others who remembered me waved to me, and I waved back. Suddenly, I could see by Alice's expression that she was annoyed. 
It's almost eight o'clock, she announced. Time to put things away. Each person had an assigned task, the putting away of chalk, erasers, paper, books, pencils, notepaper, paints, and demonstration material. Each one knew his job and took pride in doing it well. They all started on their tasks, except Bernice. She was staring at me. Why ain't Charlie been coming to school? Asked Bernice. What's the matter, Charlie? Are you coming back? The others looked up at me. I looked to Alice, waiting for her to answer for me. But there was a long silence. What could I tell them that would not hurt them? This is just a visit, I said. One of the girls started to giggle. Francine, whom Alice was always worried about, she had given birth to three children by the time she was 18, before her parents arranged for a hysterectomy. She wasn't pretty, not nearly as attractive as Bernice, but she had been an easy mark for dozens of men who brought her something pretty or paid her way to the movies. She lived at a boarding house approved for outside work trainees by the Warren State Home and was permitted out in the evenings to come to the center. Twice, she hadn't shown up, picked up by men on the way to school, and now she was allowed only she was allowed out only with an escort. He talks like a big shot now, she giggled. All right, said Alice, breaking in sharply. Class dismissed. I'll see you all tomorrow night at six. When they were gone, I could see by the way she was slamming her own things into her closet that she was angry. I'm sorry, I said. I was I was going to wait for you downstairs, and then I got curious about the old classroom, my alma mater. I just wanted to look through the window, and before I knew what I was doing, I came in. What's bothering you? Nothing. Nothing's bothering me. Come on. Your anger is all out of proportion to what's happened. Something's on your mind. She slammed down a book she was holding. All right. You want to know? You're different. You've changed. And I'm not talking about your IQ. It's your attitude toward people. You're not the same kind of human being. Oh, come on now. Don't, don't interrupt me. The real anger in her voice pushed me back. I mean it. There was something in you before, I, I don't know, a warmth, an openness, a kindness that made everyone like you and, and like to have you around. Now, with all your intelligence and knowledge, there are differences that I couldn't let myself listen. What did you expect? Did you think I'd remain a docile pup wagging my tail and licking the foot that kicks me? Sure, all this has changed me and, and the way I think about myself. I, I no longer have to take the kind of crap that people have been handing me all my life. People have not been bad to you. What do you know about it? Listen, the best of them have been smug and patronizing, using me to make themselves superior and secure in their own limitations. Anyone can feel intelligent beside a moron. After I said it, I knew she was going to take it the wrong way. You put me in that category too, I suppose. Don't be absurd. You know damn well I... Of course, in a sense, I guess you're right. Next to you, I am rather dull with it. Nowadays, every time we see each other, after I leave you, I go home with the miserable feeling that I'm slow and dense about everything. I review things I've said and come up with all the bright and witty things I should have said, and I feel like kicking myself because I didn't mention them when we were together. That's a common experience. I find myself wanting to impress you in a way I never thought about doing before. But being with you has undermined my self-confidence. I question my motives now at, about everything I do. I tried to get her off the subject, but she kept coming back to it. Look, I, I didn't come here to argue with you, I finally said. 
Will you let me take you home? I, I need someone to talk to. So do I, but these days I can't talk to you. All I can do is listen and nod my head and pretend I understand all about the cultural variance, the neo-Bolian mathematics and post-symbolic logic, and I feel more and more stupid. And when you leave the apartment, I have to stare in the mirror and scream at myself, no, you're not growing duller every day. You're not losing your intelligence. You're not getting senile and dull-witted. It's Charlie exploding forward so quickly that it makes it appear as if you're slipping backwards. I say that to myself, Charlie, but whenever we meet and you tell me something and look at me in that impatient way, I know you're laughing. And when you explain things to me and I can't remember them, you think it's because I'm not interested and don't want to take the trouble. But you don't know how I torture myself when you're gone. You don't know the books I've struggled over, the lectures I've sat down on, I've sat down in at Beckman, and yet, whenever I talk about something, I see how impatient you are, as if, as if it were all childish. I wanted you to be intelligent. I wanted to help you and, and share with you. And now you've shut me out of your life. As I listened to what she was saying, the enormity of it dawned on me. I had been so absorbed in myself that what was happening to me that I, I never thought about what was happening to her. She was crying silently as we left the school, and I found myself without words. All during the ride on the bus, I thought to myself how upside down the situation had become. She was terrified of me. The ice had broken between us, and the gap was widening as the current of my mind carried me swiftly into the open sea. She was right in refusing to torture herself by being with me. We no longer had anything in common. Simple conversation had become strained, and all there was between us now was the embarrassed silence and unsatisfied longing in a darkened room. You're very serious, she said, breaking out of her own mood and looking up at me. About us. It shouldn't make you so serious. I don't want to upset you. You're going through a great trial. She was trying to smile. But you did. Only I don't know what to do about it. On the way home from the bus stop to her apartment, she said, I'm not going to the convention with you. I called Professor Niemer this morning and told him, there will be a lot for you to do there. Interesting people, the excitement of the spotlight for a while. I don't want to be in the way. Alice, and no matter what you say about it now, I know that's how I'm going to feel. So if you don't mind, I'll, I'll hang on to my splintering ego. Thank you but you're making more of this than it is. I'm sure if you'll just, you know, you're sure? She turned and glared at me on the front steps of her apartment building. Oh, how insufferable you've become. How do you know what I feel? You take liberties with other people's minds. You can't tell how I feel or what I feel or why I feel. She started inside and then she looked back at me, her voice shaky. I'll be here when you get back. I'm just upset, that's all. And, and I want both of us to have a chance to think this out while we're a good distance apart. For the first time in many weeks, she didn't ask me inside. I stared at the closed door with the anger mounting inside me. I wanted to create a scene, to bang on the door, to even break it down. I wanted my anger to consume the building. But as I walked away, I felt a kind of simmering, then cooling, and finally relief. I walked so fast I was drifting along the streets, and the feeling that hit my cheek was a cold breeze out of the summer night, suddenly free. I realized now that my feeling for Alice had been moving backwards against the current of my learning. 
from worship to love to fondness to a feeling of gratitude and responsibility. My confused feeling for her had been holding me back, and I had clung to her out of my fear of being forced out of my own and cut adrift. But with the freedom came a sadness. I wanted to be in love with her. I wanted to overcome my emotional and sexual fears to marry, have children, settle down. Now it's impossible. I am just as far away from Alice with an IQ of 185 as I was when I had an IQ of 70. And this time we both know it. June 8. What drives me out of the apartment to prowl through the city? I wandered through the streets alone, not the relaxing stroll of a summer night, but the tense hurry to get where? Down alleyways, looking into doorways, peering into half-shuttered windows, wanting someone to talk to and yet afraid to meet anyone. Up one street and down another through the endless labyrinth, hurling myself against the neon cage of the city, searching for what? I met a woman in Central Park. She was sitting on a bench near the lake, with a coat clutched around her despite the heat. She smiled and motioned for me to sit beside her. We looked at the bright skyline on Central Park South, the honeycomb of lighted cells against the blackness, and I wished I could absorb them all. Yes, I told her, I was from New York. No, I had never been to Newport News, Virginia. That's where she was from, and where she had married the sailor who was at sea now, and she hadn't seen him in two and a half years. She twisted and knotted a handkerchief, handkerchief using it from time to time to wipe the beaded sweat from her forehead. Even in the dim light reflected from the lake, I could see that she wore a great deal of makeup, but she looked attractive with her straight dark hair loose to her shoulders, except that her face was puffy and swollen, as if she had just gotten up from sleep. She wanted to talk about herself, and I wanted to listen. Her father had given her a good home, an education, everything a wealthy shipbuilder could give his only daughter, but not forgiveness. He would never forgive her elopement with the sailor. She took my hand as she spoke and rested her head her head against my shoulder. The night Gary and I were married, she whispered, I was a terrified virgin, and he just went crazy. First, he had to slap me and beat me, and then he took me with no lovemaking. That was the last time we were ever together. I never let him touch me again. She could probably tell by the trembling of my hand that I was startled. It was too violent and intimate for me. Feeling my hand stir, she gripped it tighter as if she had to finish her story before she could let me go. It was important to her, and I said quietly as one sits before a bird that feeds from your palm. Not that I don't like men, she assured me with wide-eyed openness. I've been with other men. Not him, but lots of others. Most men are gentle and tender with a woman. They make love slowly with caresses and kisses first. She looked at me meaningfully and let her open palm brush back and forth against mine. It was what I had heard about, read about, dreamed about. I didn't know her name and she didn't ask mine. She just wanted me to take her someplace where we could be alone. I wondered what Alice would think. I caressed her awkwardly and kissed her till more hesitantly so that she looked up at me. What's the matter? She whispered. What are you thinking? About you? Do you have a place we can go? Each step forward was caution. At what point would the ground give way and plunge me into anxiety? Something kept me moving ahead to test my footing. 
if you don't have a place, the Mansion Hotel on 53rd doesn't cost too much, and they don't bother you about luggage if you pay in advance. I have a room. She looked at me with new respect. Well, that's fine. Still nothing, and this in itself was curious. How far could I go without being overwhelmed by symptoms of panic? When we were alone in the room, when she undressed, when I saw her body, when we were lying together... Suddenly, it was important to know if I could be like other men, if I could ask, if I could ever ask a woman to share a life with me. Having intelligence and knowledge wasn't enough. I wanted this, too. The sense of release and looseness was strong now with the feeling that it was possible. The excitement that came over me when I kissed her again communicated itself, and I was sure I could be normal with her. She was different from Alice. She was the kind of woman who had been around. Then her voice changed, uncertain. Before we could go, before we go, just one thing. She stood up and took a step toward me in the spray of lamplight, opening her coat. And I could see the shape of her body as I had not, as I had not imagined it all the time we were sitting next to each other in the shadows. Only the fifth month? she said. It doesn't make any difference. You don't mind, do you? Standing there with her coat open, she was superimposed as a double exposure on the picture of a middle-aged woman just out of the bathtub holding, holding open her bathrobe for Charlie to see. And I waited as a blasphemer waits for lightning. I looked away. It was the last thing I had expected. But the coat wrapped tightly around her on such a hot night should have warned me that something was wrong. It's not my husband's, she assured me. I wasn't lying to you about what I said before. I haven't seen him for years. It was a salesman I met about eight months ago. I was living with him. I'm not going to see him anymore, but I'm going to keep the baby. We've just got to be careful, not rough or anything like that. But otherwise, you don't have to worry. Her voice ran down when she saw my anger. That's filthy, I shouted. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. She drew away, wrapping her coat quickly around her to protect what lay within. As she made that protective gesture, I saw the second double image. My mother, heavy with my sister, in the days when she was holding me less, warming me less with her voice and touch, protecting me less against anyone who dared say I was subnormal. I think I grabbed her shoulder, I'm not sure, but then she was screaming, and I was sharply back to reality with the sense of danger. I wanted to tell her I had meant no harm. I would never hurt her or anyone. Please don't scream. But she was screaming, and I heard the running footsteps on the darkened path. This was something no one would understand. I ran into the darkness to find an exit from the park, zigzagging across one path and down another. I didn't know the park, and suddenly I crashed into something that threw me backwards. A, a wire mesh fence, a dead end. Then I saw the, the swings and slides and realized it was a children's playground locked up for the night. I followed the fence and kept going, half running, stumbling over twisted roots. At the lake that curved around near the playground, I doubled back, found another path, and went over the small footbridge and then around and under it. No exit. What is it? What happened, lady? A maniac? You all right? Which way did he go? I had circled back to where I had started from. I slipped behind the huge outcropping of a rock and a screen of bramble and dropped flat on my stomach. Get a cop. There's there's never a cop when you need one. What happened? A degenerate tried to rape her. Hey, some guy's down there is chasing him. There he goes. 
Come on, get the bastard before he gets out of the park. Careful, he's got a knife and a gun. It was obvious that the shouting had flushed out the night crawlers because the cry of there he goes was echoed from behind me. And looking out from behind the rock, I could see a lone runner being chased down the lamplit path into the darkness. Seconds later, another one passed in front of the rock and disappeared into the shadows. I pictured myself being caught by this eager mob and beaten and torn by them. I deserved it. I almost wanted it. I stood up, brushed the leaves and dirt from my clothing, and walked slowly down the path in the direction from which I had come. I expected every second to be grabbed from behind and pulled down into the dirt and darkness, but soon I saw the bright lights of 59th Street and 5th Avenue, and I came out of the park. Thinking about it now in the... Thinking about it now in the security of my room, I am shaken with the rawness that touched me. Remembering how my mother looked before she gave birth to my sister is frightening. But even more frightening is the feeling that I wanted them to catch me and beat me. Why did I want to be punished? Shadows out of the past clutch at my legs and drag me down. I open my mouth to scream, but I am voiceless. My hands are trembling. I feel cold and there is a distant humming in my ears. Progress Report 13, June 10. We're on a stratojet about to take off for Chicago. I owe this progress report to Bert, who had the bright idea that I should dictate this on a transistor tape recorder and have a public stenographer in Chicago type it up. Niemer likes the idea. In fact, he wants me to use the recorder up to the last minute. He feels it will add to the report if they play the most recent tape at the end of the session. So here I am, sitting off by myself in our private section of a jet on the way to Chicago, trying to get used to thinking aloud and to the sound of my own voice. I suppose the typist can get rid of all the ums, ers, and ahs and make it all seem natural on paper, I can't help the paralysis that comes over me when I think hundreds of people are going to listen to the words I'm saying now. My mind is a blank. At this point, my feelings are more important than anything else. The idea of going up in the air terrifies me. As far as I can tell, in the days before the operation, I never really understood what planes were. I never connected the movies and TV close-ups of planes with the things that I saw zooming overhead. Now that we're about to take off, I can only think of what might happen if we crash. A cold feeling and the thought that I don't want to die brings to mind those discussions about God. I've thought about death often in recent weeks, but not really about God. My mother took me to church occasionally, but I don't recall ever connecting that up with the thought of God. She mentioned him quite often and I had to pray to him at night, but I never thought about, I never thought much about it. I remember him as a distant uncle with a long beard on a throne, like Santa Claus in the department store on his big chair, who picks you up on his knees and asks you if you've been good and what you would like him to give you. She was afraid of him, but asked favors anyway. My father never mentioned my father never mentioned him. It was as if God was one of Rose's relatives he'd rather not get involved with. We're ready to take off, sir. May I help you fasten your seatbelt? Do I have to? I don't like to be strapped down. Until we're airborne. I'd rather not, unless it's necessary. I've got this fear of being strapped in. It'll probably make me sick. It's regulation, sir. Here, let me help you. 
No, I'll do it myself. No, that one goes through here. Wait, um, okay. Ridiculous. There's nothing to be afraid of. Seatbelt isn't too tight, doesn't hurt. Why should putting on the damn seatbelt be so terrifying? That and the vibrations of the plane taking off. Anxiety all out of proportion to the situation. So it must be something. What? Flying up into and through dark clouds. Fasten your seatbelt, strapped down, straining forward. Odor of sweaty leather, vibrations and a roaring sound in my ears. Through the window in the clouds, I see Charlie. Age is difficult to tell. About five years old. Before Norma. Are you two ready yet? His father comes to the doorway, heavy, especially in the sagging fleshiness of his face and neck. He has a tired look. I said, are you ready? Just a minute, answers Rose. I'm getting my hat on. See if his shirt is buttoned and tie his shoelaces. Come on, let's get this thing over with. Where? asks Charlie. Where? Charlie, go? His father looks at him and frowns. Matt Gordon never knows how to react to his son's questions. Rose appears in the doorway of her bedroom, adjusting the half veil over her hat. She is a bird-like woman, her arms up, up to her head, elbows out, look like wings. We're going to the doctor who is going to help you get smart. The veil makes it look, makes it look as if she were peering down at me through a wire screen. She is always frightened when they dress up to go out this way, but he knows he will have to meet other people and his mother will become angry and upset. He wants to run, but there is no place for him to go. Why do you have to tell him that, says Matt? Because it's the truth. Dr. Guarino says it can help him. Matt paces the floor like a man who has given up hope, but who will make one last attempt to reason. How do you know? What do you know about this man? If there was anything that could be done, the doctors would have told us long ago. Don't say that, she screeches. Don't tell me there's nothing they can do. She grabs Charlie and presses him against her bosom. He's going to be normal, whatever we have to do, whatever it costs. It's not something money can buy. It's Charlie I'm talking about, your son, your only child. She rocks him from side to side, near hysteria now. I won't listen to talk like that. They don't know, so they say nothing can be done. Dr. Garino explained it all to me. They won't sponsor his, in, his invention, he says, because it will prove they're wrong, like it was with those other scientists, Pasteur and Jennings and the rest of them. He told me all about your fine medical doctors afraid of progress. Talking back to Matt this way, she becomes relaxed and sure of herself again. When she lets go of Charlie, he goes to the corner and stands against the wall, frightened and shivering. Look, she says, you got him upset again. Me? You always start these things in front of him. Oh, Christ, come on, let's get this damn thing over with. All the way to Dr. Guarino's office, they avoid speaking to each other. Silence on the bus and silence walking three blocks from the bus to the downtown office building. After about 15 minutes, Dr. Gorino comes out to the waiting room to greet them. He is a fat and balding. He is fat and balding, and he looks as if he would pop through his white lab jacket. Charlie is fascinated by the thick white eyebrows and white mustache that twitch from time to time. Sometimes the mustache twitches first, followed by the raising of both eyebrows. But sometimes the brows go up first and the mustache twitch follows. The large white room into which Guarino ushers them smells recently painted, and it is almost bare. 
two desks on one side of the room, and on the other, a huge machine with rows of dials and four long arms like dentist drills. Nearby is a black leather examination table with thick, webbed restraining straps. Well, 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 says Garino, raising his eyebrows. So this is Charlie. He grips the boy by the shoulders firmly. We're, we're going to be friends. Can you really do anything for him, Dr. Garino? Says Matt. Have you ever treated this kind of thing before? We, we don't have much money. The eyebrows come down like shutters as Garino frowns. Mr. Gordon, have I said anything yet about what I could do? Don't I have to examine him first? Maybe something can be done. Maybe not. First, there will have to be a physical and mental test to determine the causes of the pathology. There will be enough time later to talk a prognosis. Actually, I'm very busy these days. I only agreed to look into this case because I'm doing a special study of this type of neural retardation. Of course, if you have qualms, then perhaps... His voice trails off sadly and he turns away. But Rose Gordon jabs at Matt with her elbow. My husband doesn't mean that at all, Dr. Garino. He, he talks too much. She glares at Matt again to warn him to apologize. Matt sighs. If there is any way you can help Charlie, we'll, we'll do anything you ask. Things are slow these days. I, I sell barbershop supplies, but whatever I have, I'll be, I'll, I'll be glad to. Just one thing I must insist on, says Garino, pursing his lips as if making a decision. Once we start, the treatment must continue all the way. In cases of this type, the results often come suddenly after long months without any signs of improvement. Not that I am promising you success, mind you. Nothing is guaranteed, but you must give the treatment a chance. Otherwise, you're better off not starting at all. He frowns and he frowns at them to let his warning sink in and his brows are white shades from under which his bright blue eyes stare. Now, if you'll just step aside and let me examine the boy... Matt hesitates to leave Charlie alone with him, but Garino nods. This is the best way, he says, ushering them both outside to the waiting room. The results are always more significant if the patient and I are alone when the psychosubstantiation tests are performed. External distractions have deleterious effect on the, on the ramified scores. Rose smiles at her husband triumphantly, and, Matt's fo and Matt follows her meekly outside. Alone with Charlie, Dr. Garino pats him on the head and has a kindly smile. Okay, kid, on the table. When Charlie doesn't respond, he lifts him gently onto the leather-padded table and straps him down securely with heavy webbed straps. The table smells of deeply ingrained sweat and leather. Ma! She's outside. Don't worry, Charlie. This won't hurt a bit. What, Ma? Charlie is confused at being restrained this way. He has no sense of what is being done to him. But there have been other doctors who were not so gentle after his parents left the room. Garino tries to calm him. Take it easy, kid. Nothing to be scared of. You see this big machine here? Know what I'm going to do with it? Charlie cringes and then he recalls his mother's words. Make me smart. That's right. At least you know what you're here for. Now, just close your eyes and relax while I turn on these switches. It'll make a loud noise like an airplane, but it won't hurt you. And we'll see if we can make you a bit smarter than you are now. Gorino snaps on the switch that sets the huge machine humming, red and blue lights blinking off and on. Charlie is terrified. He cringes and shivers, straining against the straps that hold him fast to the table.
He starts to scream, but Guarino quickly pushes a wad of cloth into his mouth. Now, now, Charlie, none of that. You be a good little boy. I told you it won't hurt. He tries to scream again, but all that comes out is a muffled choking that makes him want to throw up. He feels the wetness and the stickiness around his legs, and the odor tells him that his mother will punish him with the spanking and the corner for making his pants. He could not control it. Whenever he feels trapped and panic sets in, he loses control and dirties himself. Choking, sick, nausea, and everything goes black. There is no way of knowing how much time passes, but when Charlie opens his eyes, the cloth is out of his mouth and the straps have been removed. Dr. Garino pretends he does not smell the odor. Now that didn't hurt a bit, did it? N no. Well, then what are you trembling like that for? All I did was use that machine to make you smarter. How does it feel to be smarter now than you were before? Forgetting his terror, Charlie stares wide-eyed at the machine. Did I get smart? Of course you did. Uh, stand back over there. How does it feel? Feels wet. I made... Yes, well, um, you won't do that next time, will you? You won't be scared anymore now that you know it doesn't hurt. Now, I want you to tell your mom how smart you feel, and she'll bring you here twice a week for shortwave encephalo reconditioning, and you'll get smarter and smarter and smarter. Charlie smiles. I can walk backwards. You can. Let's see, says Garino, closing his folder in mock excitement. Let me see. Slowly and with great effort, Charlie takes several steps backward, stumbling against the examination table as he goes. Corino smiles and nods. Now that's what I call something. Oh, you wait. You're going to be the smartest boy on your block before we're through with you. Charlie flushes with pleasure at this praise and attention. It is not often that people smile at him and tell him he has done something well. Even the terror of the machine and of being strapped down to the table begins to fade. On the whole block? The thought fills him as if he cannot take enough air into his lungs no matter how he tries. Even smarter than Jaime? Garino smiles and nods again. Smarter than Jaime? Charlie looks at the machine with new wonder and respect. The machine will make him smarter than Jaime who lives two doors away and knows how to read and write and is in the Boy Scouts. Is that your machine? Not yet. It belongs to the bank. But soon it'll be mine, and then I'll be able to make lots of boys like you, smart. He pats Charlie's head and says, You're a lot nicer than some of the normal kids whose mothers bring them here, hoping I can make geniuses out of them by raising their IQs. Do they be geniuses if you raise their eyes? He puts his hand to his face to see if the machine has done anything to raise his eyes. You're going to make me a genius? Gorino's laugh is friendly as he squeezes Charlie's shoulder. No, Charlie, nothing for you to worry about. Only nasty little donkeys become gene asses. You'll, you'll stay just as you are, a nice kid. And then, thinking better of it, he adds, of course, a little smarter than you are now. He unlocks the door and leads Charlie out to his parents. Here he is, folks, none the worse for experience. A good boy. I think we're going to be good friends, eh, Charlie? Charlie nods. He wants Dr. Garino to like him, but he is terrified when he sees the expression on his mother's face. Charlie, what did you do? Just an accident, Mrs. Gordon. He was frightened the first time, but don't blame him or punish him. I wouldn't want him to connect punishment with coming here. But Rose Gordon is sick with embarrassment. It's disgusting. I don't know what to do, Dr. Garino. Even at home, he forgets. And sometimes when we have people in the house, I'm so ashamed when he does that. 
The look of disgust on his mother's face sets him trembling. For a short while, he had forgotten how bad he is, how he makes his parents suffer. He doesn't know how, but it frightens him when she says he makes her suffer. And when she cries and screams at him, he turns his face to the wall and moans softly to himself. Now, don't upset him, Mrs. Gordon, and don't worry. Bring him to me on Tuesday and Thursday each week at the same time. But will this really do any good? asked Matt. Ten dollars is a lot of... Matt, she clutches at his sleeve. Is that anything to talk about at a time like this? Your own flesh and blood, and maybe Dr. Garino can make him like the other children with the Lord's help, and you talk about money? Matt Gordon starts to defend himself, but then, thinking better of it, he pulls out his wallet. Please, sighs Garino, as if embarrassed at the sight of money. My assistant at the front desk will take care of all the financial arrangements. Thank you. He half bows to Rose, shakes Matt's hand, and pats Charlie on the back. Nice boy, very nice. Then, smiling again, he disappears behind the door to the inner office. They argue all the way home, Matt complaining that barber supply sales have fallen off and that their savings are dwindling. Rose screeching back that making Charlie normal is more important than anything else. Frightened by their quarreling, Charlie whimpers. The sound of anger in their voices is painful to him. As soon as they enter the apartment, he pulls away and runs to the corner of the kitchen. Behind the door stands behind the door and stands with his forehead pressed against the tile wall, trembling and moaning. They pay no attention to him. They have forgotten that he has to be cleaned and changed. I'm not hysterical. I'm just sick of you complaining every time I try to do something for your son. You don't care. You just don't care. That's not true. But I realize there's nothing we can do. When you've got a child like him, it's a cross and you bear it and love it. Well, I can bear him, but I can't stand your foolish ways. You spent almost all our savings on quacks and phonies. Money I could have used to set me up in a nice business of my own. Yes, don't look at me that way. For all the money you've thrown down the sewer to do something that can't be done, I could have had a barbershop of my own instead of eating my heart out selling for 10 hours a day. My own place with people working for me. Stop shouting. Look at him. He's frightened. To hell with you. Now I know who's the dope around here. Me for putting up with you. He storms out, slamming the door behind him. Sorry to interrupt you, sir, but we're going to be landing in a few minutes. You'll have to fasten your seatbelt again. Oh, you have it on, sir. You've had it on all the way from New York. Close to two hours. I forgot all about it. I'll just leave it on until we land. It doesn't seem to bother me anymore. Now I can see where I got the unusual motivation for becoming smart that so amazed everyone at first. It was something Rose Gordon lived with day and night. Her fear, her guilt, her shame that Charlie was a moron. Her dream that something could be done. The urgent question always, whose fault was it, hers or Matt's? Only after Norma proved to her that she was capable of having normal children and that I was a freak did she stop trying to make me over. But I guess I never stopped wanting to be the smart boy she wanted me to be so that she would love me. A funny thing about Gorino, I should resent him for what he did to me and for taking advantage of Rose and Matt, but somehow I can't. After that first day, he was always pleasant to me. There was always a pat on the shoulder, the smile, the encouraging word that came my way so rarely. He treated me, even then, as a human being. 
It may sound like ingratitude, but that is one of the things that I resent here. The attitude that I am a guinea pig. Nemer's constant reference to having made me what I am, or that someday there will be others like me who will become real human beings. How can I make him understand that he did not create me? He makes the same mistake as the others when they look at a feeble-minded person and laugh because they don't understand there are human beings involved. He doesn't realize that I was a person before I came here. I am learning to control my resentment, not to be so impatient, to wait for things. I guess I'm growing up. Each day I learn more and more about myself and the memories that began as ripples now wash over me in high-breaking waves. June 11. The confusion began from the moment we arrived at the Chalmers Hotel in Chicago and discovered that by error, our rooms would not be vacant until the next night, and until then, we would have to stay at the nearby Independence Hotel. Niemer was furious. He took it as a personal affront and quarreled with everyone in the line of hotel, everyone in the line of hotel command from the bellhop to the manager. We waited in the lobby as each hotel official went off in search of his superior to see what could be done. In the midst of all the confusion, luggage drifting in and piling up all around the lobby, bellboys hustling back and forth with their luggage carts, members who hadn't seen each other in a year, recognizing and greeting each other. We stood there feeling increasingly embarrassed as Niemer tried to collar officials connected with the International Psychological Association. Finally, when it became apparent that nothing could be done about it, he accepted the fact that we would have to spend our first night in Chicago at the Independence. As it turned out, most of the younger psychologists were staying at the Independence, and that was where the big first night parties were. Here, people had heard about the experiment, and most of them knew who I was. Wherever we went, someone came up and asked my opinions on everything from the effects of the new tax to the latest archaeological discoveries in Finland. It was challenging, and my storehouse of general knowledge made it easy for me to talk about almost anything. But after a while, I could see that Niemer was annoyed at all the attention I was getting. When an attractive young clinician from Falmouth College asked me if I could explain some of the causes of my own retardation, I told her that Professor Niemer was the man to answer that. It was the chance he had been waiting for to show his authority, and for the first time since we'd known each other, he put his hand on my shoulder. We don't know exactly what causes the type of phenylketonuria that Charlie was suffering from as a child, some unusual biochemical or genetic situation, probably ionizing radiation or natural radiation or even a virus attack on the fetus. Whatever it was resulted in a defective gene which produces a, shall we say, maverick enzyme that creates a maverick enzyme that creates defective biochemical reactions and, of course, newly produced amino acids acids compete with the normal enzymes, enzymes causing brain damage. The girl frowned. She had not expected a lecture, but Niemer had seized the floor and he went on in the same vein. I call it competitive inhibition for enzymes. Let me give you an example of how it works. Think of the enzyme produced by the defective gene as a wrong key which fits into the chemical lock of the central nervous system but won't turn. Because it's there, the true key, the right enzyme, can't even enter the lock. It's blocked. Result? Irreversible destruction of proteins in the brain tissue. But if it is reversible, intruded, uh, intruded one of the other psychologists who had joined the little audience, how is it possible that Mr. Gordon here is no longer retarded? Ah, 
crowed Niemer. I said the destruction to the tissue was irreversible, not the process itself. Many researchers have been able to reverse the process through injections of chemicals which combine with the defective enzymes, changing the molecular shape of the interfering key, as it were. This is central to our own technique as well. But first, we remove the damaged portions of the brain and permit the implanted brain tissue, which has been chemically revitalized, to produce brain proteins at a supernormal rate. Just just a minute, Professor Niemer, I said, interrupting him at the height of his per, uh, peroration. What about Rahajamadi's Raha work in that field? He looked at me blankly. Who? Rahajamadi. His article attacks Tanita's theory of enzyme fusion, the concept of changing the chemical structure of the enzyme, blocking the step in the metabolic pathway. He frowned. What was that article? Where was that article translated? It hasn't been translated yet. I read it in the Hindu Journal of Psychopathology just a few days ago. He looked at his audience and tried to shrug it off. Well, I don't think we have anything to worry about. Our results speak for themselves. But Tanita himself first propounded the theory of blocking the maverick enzyme through combination. And now he points out that, oh, come now, Charlie, just because a man is the first to come forth with a theory doesn't make him the final word on, it, on its experimental development. I think everyone here will agree that the research done in the United States and Britain far outshines the work done in India and Japan. We still have the best laboratories and the best equipment in the world. But that doesn't answer Rahajamadi's point. This is not the time or place to go into that. I'm certain all of those points will be adequately dealt with in tomorrow's session. He turned to talk to someone about an old college friend, cutting me off completely, and I stood there dumbfounded. I managed to get Strauss off to one side, and I started questioning him. All right now, you've been telling me I'm too sensitive to him. What did I say that upset him that way? You're making him feel inferior and he can't take it. I'm serious, for God's sake. Tell me the truth. Charlie, you've got to stop thinking that everyone is laughing at you. Nimmer couldn't discuss those articles because he hasn't read them. He can't read those languages. Not read Hindi and Japanese? Oh, come on now. Charlie, not everyone has your gift for languages. But then how can he refute Rahajamadi's attack on this method and Tanita's challenge to the validity of this kind of control? He must know about those. No said Strauss thoughtfully. Those papers must be recent. There hasn't been time to get translations made. You mean you haven't read them either? He shrugged. I'm an even worse linguist than he is. But I'm certain before the final reports are turned in, all the journals will be combed for additional data. I didn't know what to say. To hear him admit that both of them were ignorant of whole ideas in their own field was terrifying. What languages do you know? I asked him. French, German, Spanish, Italian, and enough Swedish to get along. No Russian, Chinese, Portuguese. He reminded me that as a practicing psychiatrist and neurosurgeon, he had very little time for languages, and the only ancient languages that he could read were Latin and Greek, nothing of the ancient Oriental tongues. I could see he wanted to end the discussion, and at that point, but somehow I couldn't let go. I had to find out just how much he knew. I found out. This Physics, nothing beyond the quantum theory of fields. Geology, nothing about the geomorphology or stratigraphy or even petrology. Nothing about the micro or macro economic theory. 
little in economics beyond the elementary level of calculus of variations and nothing at all about Banach algebra or Romanian manifolds, it was the first inkling of the revelations that were in store for me this weekend. I couldn't stay at the party. I slipped away to walk and think this out. Frauds. Both of them. They had pretended to be geniuses, but they were just ordinary men working blindly, pretending to be able to bring light into darkness. Why is it that everyone lies? No one I know is what he appears to be. As I turned the corner, I caught a glimpse of Bert coming after me. What's the matter? I said as he caught up to me. Are you following me? He shrugged and laughed uncomfortably. Exhibit A, star of the show. Can't have you run down by one of these motorized Chicago cowboys or mugged and rolled on State Street. I don't like being kept in custody. He avoided my gaze as he walked beside me, his hands deep in his pockets. Take it easy, Charlie. The old man is on edge. This convention means a lot to him. His reputation is at stake. I didn't know you were so close to him, I taunted, recalling all the times Bert had complained about the professor's narrowness and pushing. I'm not close to him. He looked at me defiantly. But he's put his whole life into this. He's no Freud or Jung or Pavlov or Watson, but he's doing something important, and I respect his dedication, maybe even more because he's just an ordinary man trying to do a great man's work, while the great men are all busy making bombs. I'd like to hear you call him ordinary to his face. It doesn't matter what he thinks of himself. Sure, he's egotistical, so what? It takes that kind of ego to make a man attempt a thing like this. I've seen enough of men like him to know that mixed in with that pompousness and self-assertion is a goddamn good measure of uncertainty and fear. And phoniness and shallowness, I added. I see them now as they really are, phonies. I, was, I suspected it of Niemer. He, he always seemed frightened of something, but Strauss surprised me. Bert paused and let out a long stream of breath. We turned into a luncheonette for coffee, and I didn't see his face, but the sound revealed his exasperation. You think I'm wrong? Just that you've come a long way kind of fast, he said. You've got a superb mind now, intelligence, intelligence that, that can't really be calculated, more knowledge absorbed by now than most people pick up in a long lifetime. But you're lopsided. You know things, you see things, but you haven't developed understanding, or I hate to use the word tolerance. You call them phonies, but when did either of them ever claim to be perfect or superhuman? They're ordinary people. You're the genius. He broke off awkwardly, suddenly aware that he was preaching at me. Go ahead. Ever meet Nemer's wife? No. If you want to understand why he's under tension all the time, even when things are going well at the lab and in his lectures, you've got to know Bertha Nemer. Did you know she got him his professorship? Did you know she used her father's influence to get him the Welberg Foundation grant? Well, now that she's pushed him into this premature presentation at the convention, until you've had a woman like her riding you, don't think you can understand the man who has. I didn't say anything, and all I could see was that he wanted to get back to the hotel. All the way back, we were silent. Am I a genius? I don't think so. Not yet, anyway. As Bert would put it, mocking the euphemisms of educational jargon, I'm exceptional, a democratic term used to avoid the damning labels of gifted and deprived, which used to mean bright and retarded. And as soon as exceptional begins to mean 
to mean anything to anyone, they'll change it again. The idea seems to be use an expression only as long as it doesn't mean anything to anybody. Exceptional refers to both ends of the spectrum. So all my life I've been exceptional. Strange thing about learning. The farther I go, the more I see that I never knew existed. A short while ago, I foolishly thought I could learn everything, all the knowledge in the world. Now, I hope only to be able to know of its, of its existence and to understand one grain of it. Is there time? Bert is annoyed with me. He finds me impatient and the others must feel the same. But they hold me back and try to keep me in my place. What is my place? Who and what am I now? Am I the sum of my life or only of the past months? Oh, how impatient they get when I try to discuss it with them. They don't like to admit that they don't know. It's paradoxical that an ordinary man like Niemer presumes to devote himself to making other people geniuses. He would like to be thought of as the discoverer of new laws of learning, the Einstein of psychology. And he has the teacher's fear of being surpassed by the student, the master's dread of having the disciple discredit his work. Not that I am in any way, any real sense, Niemer's student or disciple as Bert is. I guess Niemer's fear of being revealed as a man walking on stilts among giants is understandable. Failure at this point would destroy him. He is too old to start all over again. As shocking as it is to discover the truth about men I had respected and looked up to, I guess Bert is right. I must not be too impatient with them. Their ideas and brilliant work made the experiment possible. I've got to guard against the natural tendency to look down on them now that I have surpassed them. I've got to realize that when they continually admonish me to speak and write simply so that people who read these reports will be able to understand me, they are talking about themselves as well. But it's still frightening to realize that my fate is in the hands of men who are not the giants I once thought them to be. Men who don't know all the answers. June 13. I'm dictating this under great emotional strain. I've walked out on the whole thing. I'm on a plane headed back to New York alone and I have no idea what I'm going to do when I get there. At first, I admit, I was in awe of the picture of an international convention of scientists and scholars gathered for the exchange of ideas. Here, I thought, was where it all really happened. Here, it would be different from the sterile college discussions because these were the men on the highest levels of psychological research and education, the scientists who wrote the books and delivered the lectures, the authorities people quoted. If Niemer and Strauss were ordinary men working beyond their abilities, I felt sure it would be different with the others. When it was time for the meeting, Niemer steered us through the gigantic lobby with, with its heavy Baroque furnishings and, and huge curving marble staircases, and we moved through the thickening knots of handshakes and nodders and smilers. Two other professors from Beekman who arrived in Chicago just this morning joined us. Professors White and Klinger walked a little to the right and a step or two behind Niemer and Strauss while Bert and I brought up the rear. Standees parted to make a path for us into the grand ballroom, and Niemer waved to the reporters and photographers who had come to hear at, to hear firsthand about the startling things that had been done with the retarded adult in just a little over three months. Niemer had obviously sent out advanced publicity releases. Some of the psychological papers delivered at the meeting were impressive. A group from Alaska showed how stimulation of nervous portions of the brain caused a significant development and learning ability, and a group from New Zealand had mapped out those portions of the brain that controlled perception and retention of stimuli. 
But there were other kinds of papers, too. P.T. Zellerman's study on the difference in the length of time it took white rats to learn a maze when the corners were curved rather than regular, or Warfel's paper on the effective intelligence level on the reaction time of rhesus monkeys. Papers like these made me angry. Money, time, and energy squandered on the detailed analysis of the trivial. Bert was right when he praised Niemer and Strauss for devoting themselves to something important and uncertain rather than to something insignificant and safe. If only Niemer would look at me as a human being. After the chairman announced the presentation from Beekman University, we took our seats on the platform behind the long table. Algernon in his cage between Bert and me. We were the main attraction of the evening, and when we were settled, the chairman began his introduction. I half expected to hear him boom out, Ladies and gentlemen, step right this way and see the sideshow, an act never before seen in the scientific world. A mouse and a moron turned into geniuses before your very eyes. I admit, I had come there with a chip on my shoulder. All he said was, the next presentation really needs no introduction. We have all heard about the startling work being done at Beekman University, sponsored by the Welberg Foundation grants under the direction of the chairman of the psychology department, Professor Niemer, in cooperation with Dr. Strauss of the Beekman Neuropsychiatric Center. Needless to say, this is a report we have all been looking forward to with great interest. I turned the meeting over to Professor Niemer and Dr. Strauss. Niemer nodded graciously at the chairman's introductory praise and winked at Strauss in the triumph of the moment. The first speaker from Beekman was Professor Klinger. I was becoming irritated and I could see that Algernon, upset by the smoke, the buzzing and the unaccustomed surroundings, was moving around in his cage nervously. I had the strangest compulsion to open his cage and let him out. It was an absurd thought, more of an itch than a thought, and I tried to ignore it. But as I listened to Professor Klinger's stereotype paper on the effects of left-handed gold boxes in a tea maze versus right-handed gold box in a tea maze, I found myself toying with the release lock mechanism of Algernon's cage. In a short while, before Strauss and Niemer would unveil their crowning achievement, Bert would read a paper describing the procedures and results of administering intelligence and learning tests he had devised for Algernon. That would be followed by a demonstration as Algernon was put through his paces of solving a problem in order to get his meal, something I have never stopped resenting. Now, not that I had anything against Bert. He had always been straightforward with me, more so than most of the others. But when he described the white mouse who had been given intelligence, he was as pompous and artificial as the others, as if he were trying on the mantle of his teachers. I restrained myself at that point more out of friendship for Bert than anything else. Letting Algernon out of his cage would throw the meeting into chaos, and after all, this was Bert's debut into the rat race of academic preferment. I had my finger on the cage door release, and as Algernon watched the movement of my hand with his pink candy eyes, I'm certain he knew what I had in mind. At that moment, Bert took the cage for his demonstration. He explained the complexity of the shifting lock and the problem solving required each time the lock was to be opened. Then plastic boats fell into place in varying patterns and had to be controlled by the mouse who depressed a series of levers in the same order. As Algernon's intelligence increased, his problem solving speed increased. That much was obvious, but then Bert revealed one thing I had not known. 
At the peak of his intelligence, Algernon's performance had become variable. There were times, according to Bert's report, when Algernon refused to work at all, even when apparently hungry, and other times when he would not solve the problem, but instead and other times when he would solve the problem, but instead of taking his food reward, would hurl himself against the walls of his cage. When someone from the audience asked Bert if he was suggesting that this erratic behavior was directly caused by increased intelligence, Bert ducked the question. As far as I'm concerned, he said, there's not enough evidence to warrant that conclusion. There are other possibilities. It is possible that both the increased intelligence and the erratic behavior at this level were created by the original surgery instead of one being one function of the other. It's also possible that this erratic behavior is unique to Algernon. We didn't find it in any of the other mice, but then none of the others achieved this high a level of intelligence, nor maintained it for as long as Algernon has. I realized immediately that this information had been withheld from me. I suspected the reason, and that I was, and I was annoyed, but that was nothing to the anger I felt when they brought out the films. I had never known that my early performances and tests in the laboratory were filmed. There I was, at the table beside Bert, confused and open-mouthed as I tried to run the maze with the electric stylus. Each time I received a shock, my expression changed to an absurd, an absurd wide-eyed stare, and then that foolish smile again. Each time it happened, the audience roared. Race after race, it was repeated, and each time they found it funnier than before. I told myself they were not gawking curiosity seekers, but scientists here in search of knowledge. They couldn't help finding these pictures funny, but still, as Bert caught the spirit and made amusing comments on the film, I was overcome with a sense of mischief. It would be even funnier to see Algernon escape from his cage and to see all these people scattering and crawling around on their hands and knees trying to retrieve a small, white, scurrying genius. But I controlled myself, and by the time Strauss took the podium, the impulse had passed. Strauss dealt, dealt largely with the theory and techniques of neurosurgery, describing in detail how pioneer studies on the mapping of hormone control centers enabled him to isolate and stimulate these centers while at the same time removing the hormone inhibitor producing portion of the cortex. He explained the enzyme block theory and went on to describe my physical condition before and after surgery. Photographs, I didn't know they had been taken, were passed around and commented on, and I could see by the nods and smiles that most people there agreed with him that the dull, vacuous facial expression had been transformed into an alert, intelligent appearance. He also discussed in detail the pertinent aspects of our therapy sessions especially my changing attitudes towards free association on the couch. I had come there as part of a scientific presentation and I had expected to be put on exhibition, but everyone kept talking about me as if I were some kind of newly created thing they were presenting to the scientific world. No one in this room considered me an individual, a human being. The constant just juxtaposition of Algernon and Charlie and Charlie and Algernon made it clear that they thought of both of us as a couple of experimental animals who had no existence outside of the laboratory. But aside from my anger, I couldn't get it out of my mind that something was wrong. Finally, it was Niemer's turn to speak, to sum it all up as the head of the project, to take the spotlight as the author of a brilliant experiment. This was the day he had been waiting for. 
He was impressive as he stood up there on the platform, and as he spoke, I found myself nodding with him, agreeing with things I knew to be true. The testing, the experiment, the surgery, and my subsequent mental development were described at length, and his talk was enlivened by quotations from my progress reports. More than once, I found myself hearing something personal or foolish read to this audience. Thank God I had been careful to keep most of the details about Alice and myself in my private file. Then, at one point in his summary, he said it. We who have worked on this project at Beekman University have the satisfaction of knowing we have taken one of nature's mistakes and by our new techniques created a superior human being. When Charlie came to us, he was outside of society, alone in a great city without friends or relatives to care about him, without the mental equipment to live a normal life. No past, no contact with the present, no hope for the future. It might be said that Charlie Gordon did not really exist before this experiment. I don't know why I resented it so intensely to have them think of me as something newly minted in their private treasury. But it was, I am certain, echoes of that idea that had been sounding in the chambers of my mind from the time we had arrived in Chicago. I wanted to get up and show everyone what a fool he was, to shout at him. I'm a human being, a person with parents and memories and a history, and it was before you ever wheeled me into that operating room. At the same time, deep in the heat of my anger, there was forged an overwhelming insight into the thing that had disturbed me when Strauss spoke and again when Niemer amplified his data. They had made a mistake, of course. The statistical evaluation of, of the waiting period necessary to prove the permanence of the change had been based on earlier experiments in the field of mental development and learning on waiting periods with normally dull or normally intelligent animals. But it was obvious that the waiting period would have to be extended in those cases where an animal's intelligence had been increased two or three times. Nemer's conclusions had been premature. For both Algernon and myself, it would take more time to see if this change would stick. The professors had made a mistake and no one else had caught it. I wanted to jump up and tell them, but I couldn't move. Like Algernon, I found myself behind the mesh of the cage they had built around me. Now, there would be a question period, and before I would be allowed to have my dinner, I would be required to perform before this distinguished gathering. No, I had to get out of there. In one sense, he is the result of modern psychological experimentation. In place of a feeble-minded shell, a burden on the society that must fear his irresponsible behavior, we have a man of dignity and sensitivity, ready to take his place as a contributing member of society. I should like you all to hear a few words from Charlie Gordon. God damn him. He didn't know what he was talking about. At this point, the compulsion overwhelmed me. I watched in fascination as my hand moved, independent of my will, to pull down on the latch on, Elger, on Algernon's cage. As I opened it, he looked up at me and paused. Then he turned, darted out of his cage, and scampered across the long table. At first, he was lost against the damask tablecloth, a blur of white on white, until a woman at the table screamed, knocking her chair backwards as she leaped to her feet. Beyond her, pictures of water overturned, and then Bert shouted, Algernon's loose! Algernon jumped down from the table onto the platform and then to the floor. Get him! Get him! Neymar screeched as the audience, divided in its aims, became a tangle of arms and legs. 
Some of the women non-experimentalists tried to stand up on unstable folding chairs while others trying to help corner Algernon knocked them over. Close the back doors, shouted Bert, who realized Algernon was smart enough to head in that direction. Run, I heard myself shout. The side door. He's gone out the side door, someone echoed. Get him, get him, begged Niemer. The crowd surged out of the grand ballroom into the corridor as Algernon, scampering along the maroon carpeted hallway, led them a merry chase under Louis under Louis XIV tables, around potted palms, up stairways, around corners, down stairways, and into the main lobby, picking up other people as we went. Seeing them all running back and forth in the lobby, chasing a white mouse smarter than many of them, was the funniest thing that had happened in a long time. Go ahead and laugh, snorted Nemer, who nearly bumped into me. But if we don't find him, the whole experiment is in danger. I pretended to be looking for Algernon under a wastebasket. Do you know something? I said. You've made a mistake, and after today, maybe it just won't matter at all. Seconds later, half a dozen women came screaming out of the powder room, skirts clutched frantically around their legs. He's in there, someone yelled. But for a moment, the searching crowd was stayed by the handwriting on the wall. Ladies, I was the first to cross the invisible barrier and enter the sacred gates. Algernon was perched on top of one of the wash wash basins, glaring at his reflection in the mirror. Come on, I said, we'll get out of here together. He let me pick him up and put him into my pocket, into my jacket pocket. Stay in there quietly until I tell you. The others came bursting through the swinging doors, looking guiltily as if they expected to see screaming nude females. I walked out as they searched the washroom and I heard Bert's voice. There's a hole in that ventilator. Maybe he went up there. Find out where it leads to, said Strauss. You go up to the second floor, said Niemer, waving to Strauss. I'll go down to the basement. At this point, they burst out of the ladies' room and the forces split. I followed behind the Strauss contingent up to the second floor as they tried to discover where the ventilator led to. When Strauss and White and their half-dozen followers turned right down the court, turned right down corridor B, I turned left up corridor C and took the elevator up to my room. I closed the door behind me and patted my pocket. A pink snout and white fuzz poked out and looked around. I'll just get my things packed, I said, and we'll take off. Just you and me. A couple of man-made geniuses on the run. I had the bellhop put the bags and the tape recorder into a waiting taxi, paid my hotel bill, and walked out the revolving door with the object of search nestled in my pocket and my jacket pocket. I used my return flight ticket to New York. Instead of going back to my place, I plan to stay at a hotel here in the city for one or two nights. We'll use that as a base of operations while I look for a furnished apartment somewhere at Midtown. I want to be near Times Square. Talking all this out makes me feel a lot better, even a little silly. I don't really know why I got so upset or what I'm doing on a jet heading back to New York with Algernon in a shoebox under the seat. I mustn't panic. The mistake doesn't necessarily mean anything serious. It isn't that things are not as definite as Nemer believed. But where do I go from here? First, I've got to see my parents as soon as I can. I may not have all the time I thought I had. And that brings us to the end of Progress Report 13 of Daniel Key's Flowers for Algernon. Thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. I would ask you to please rate the podcast if you would please. And if you're so inclined, please kindly make a small contribution, donation, or tip, if you will. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.